You open your Bibles to John chapter 9, and we have completed the discourse that took place during the Feast of Tabernacles, and we had a brief pause last week as we looked at Philippians chapter 1 and one of the prayers that Paul had prayed for the early church, and so we're going to rejoin this morning the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at chapter 9 and his encounter with the blind man. As was mentioned many, many, many weeks ago, there were eight miracles recorded in the Gospel of John, and this is number six. And what's interesting about this miracle is that nowhere else in the Old Testament or the New Testament is the ability to heal someone from their blindness attributed to anybody other than Jesus. There's nothing in the Old Testament about anybody being healed from blindness. There's nothing in the book of Acts that speaks of one being healed from their blindness. The only thing we have in the book of Acts is where Paul was temporarily blinded as God had called him into ministry and was later healed from that at the hands of Ananias. But nowhere is to say anywhere in the Bible that someone was healed from their blindness. It's understood, though, then in Jewish tradition and Jewish theology that the ability to give sight to the blind, it's understood as the only, excuse me, it's understood as the unique ability of God and God alone. We read in Psalm 146, 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Isaiah would prophesy about the messianic ministry that the Jewish nation would look forward to. And Isaiah 29, 18, on that day, when the Messiah comes, the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. So whether these verses and others like it are speaking literally or spiritually, that can be debated. But the activity of giving sight to the blind, physically or spiritually, is uniquely reserved for God alone. John's initial goal of showing Jesus to be God in the flesh is continued as he discusses this event, this miraculous event in the life and in the ministry of Christ. Chapter 9 appears to begin a new section. It will run all the way through chapter 10, 21, and it will include two of the I am statements that Jesus makes about himself. He is the gate, and he will later say that he is the good shepherd. So let's look at John chapter 9 and see what God's Word says to us today. We're going to look through verse 7. Initially, I wanted to go all the way to 12, but uh, couldn't get there. Just too much information. So let's read verses 1 through 7 together and hear what God's Word says to us today. As he passed by, he, Jesus, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent, so he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now, there's a lot more that happens after this, and there's a continuation of what transpired after this healing. But there's so much information in these first seven verses that we need to understand that will help us appreciate even more what comes to follow. So we'll look at this in three major 
um, sections this morning. Number one, we're going to look at the setting. Verse 1a, as he passed by. So it's unclear how closely connected chapter 9 is to the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles began in the middle of John 7 and ran all the way through the, eight, through the end of chapter 8. But when we look at verse 5, where Jesus restates that he is the light of the world, it seems to make a connection back to the Feast of Tabernacles. But the wording is considered by scholars to be very vague, and you really can't make that as a definitive assertion. It's a speculation, but we can't know for sure. If you remember, in John chapter 8, verse 59, at the conclusion of the narrative about the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus disappeared from the temple as the Jewish people were attempting to stone him. So it's unlikely that Jesus exited the immediate temple area and stopped while they were seeking to stone him and encountered this blind man. So many speculate that there's some time that has passed by, but they can't say for sure. In verse 7, there is the instruction to wash in the pool of Siloam, which indicates that Jesus is still in the vicinity of Jerusalem. The pool of Siloam is not too far from the temple itself. So it indicates that he's near Jerusalem. He's probably also near the temple because this is a very common place for people who had diseases and other kind of afflictions to gather so that those who would come to worship would be asked to give them help. You've heard of the giving of alms. And this is what people who were blind and lame and crippled would do is they would gather near the temple and they would seek help from those who came to worship. So very likely the setting here is that Jesus is near Jerusalem but potentially not immediately following the Feast of the Tabernacle dialogue. second section we see here, and we'll spend a lot of time on this, is the problem. Verse 1 continues, He saw a blind man from birth. Now there's four pieces that are going to be a part of this problem. The first thing that we see is that Jesus has encountered this blind man. Of all of the incurable, non-terminal diseases or physical maladies one could have, I would consider blindness to be the most difficult. You can navigate decently without hearing. If you can't walk very well today, in our culture today, you've got wheelchairs and scooters and other things that will help you get around. But to not be able to see, I consider to be an incredible hardship. In our modern world, there are many fantastic things that help the blind to live a much better life. Not only have they learned to read by using Braille, but they also have new technology that has opened up an entirely new world for people who are blind. Braille keyboards, apps for your phone, smartwatches, seeing eye dogs, and the list goes on and on and on. Great hardship to be blind, but make no mistake about it, being blind today pales in comparison to being blind in the ancient world. In the ancient world, people who were blind were forced into an existence with little to no option. If you were blind or had some other non-terminal permanent injury or malady and didn't have a family to care for you, you were at the complete mercy of the goodness of the people around you. Those without family would have no way to care for themselves. So this man was born blind. There's no indication how they knew that he was born blind. It doesn't appear to be a post-event insertion by John. They seem to know that he was born blind. I don't know because they've seen him at the temple for years and years and years. don't know because they may have known the family and known the situation. All of it's speculation. But the fact is this, is they know that he was born 
blind. And this is important as we go through the remainder of this encounter. So it's all speculation, but Jesus is going to encounter this man who was born blind and he's going to change his life forever. The second aspect of this problem is this misunderstanding. This misunderstanding is articulated in verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? So the misunderstanding is that someone has sinned. It was a common belief within Judaism that physical ailments like blindness or deafness or other birth defects that limited walking and other parts of a normal life were the direct result of personal sin. The rabbis of Jesus' day argued and said this, quote, there is no death without sin and no suffering without guilt. So did this man sin to cause his blindness or did his parents sin resulting in his blindness? This is the question that Jesus' disciples are asking and this would be the prevailing thought about blindness in Jesus' day. Jews believed it was possible for sin to occur in the womb, meaning this individual might have sinned in the womb, and one of the reasons that they do that is they likely trace this back to Jacob and Esau's struggle in Rebekah's womb. You remember that encounter when Esau reached out and became the firstborn. There was a struggle going on there, and the Jewish people considered that to be sinful. It's also the result of a misreading of a verse like this, of Psalm 56, 58, verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. Now, you and I would likely read this as an indication of our complete spiritual depravity, of our inability to enter into this world with any goodness of our own. But the Jews of Jesus' day understood this to mean that it was very possible for someone to be guilty of sin before they were even born. So this speaks of our being born with a sinful nature, not sinning while we are still in our mother's womb. And additionally, additionally to this, Hellenistic Jews, those who were greatly influenced by Greek philosophy, believed in the pre-existence of the soul. So perhaps there was something in a previous life that someone was now being punished for. So if you were a Hellenistic Jew and someone was born blind, you might think, well, you lived a pretty bad life in your previous life and God's getting even now, so perhaps that's why you were born blind. But what we need to understand is this. Suffering in general is a result of sin in general. Let me say that again. Suffering suffering in general is the result of sin in general. At the curse of the fall, all the way back in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, Eden, suffering was introduced into man's existence, and we are still living in a world impacted by the fall. We can trace all human suffering back to that single event when Adam and Eve disobeyed the only command from God and therefore introduced death and suffering into our world. Hard to imagine that there was actually a time, albeit very brief, where there was no suffering in man's existence. But that's not the way that it is. Suffering specifically can be a result of specific sin. So suffering in general is attributed to sin in general, but 
Sin specifically can also lead to specific suffering. For example, when Miriam rebelled against Moses all the way back in the days of the wilderness, it it records for us in Numbers chapter 12, verse 10, when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow, as Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. When Paul addressed the church at Corinth and the great abuse that was taking place in worship, and most specifically at the Lord's Supper, he records these words in 1 Corinthians 11, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But to say that all suffering is a result of specific sin is false and is not supported in Scripture. It is true that children often suffer because of the sinful choices of their parents. For example, those who are consumed with an addiction, those who would physically abuse their kids, those who would neglect them emotionally or deprive them of basic necessities. These are most clearly inflicting suffering into the lives of their children, but that does not mean that their children are born with some kind of physical problem because of their parents' sin. Now, the most familiar verses that we see in the Old Testament that support the disciples' misunderstanding about the sin of the parents resulting in the blindness of this man is found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It's not the only passage, but it's the most prominent. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. So it was very common for Jewish people to think that the sins of the fathers were passed on to the children very specifically. But what we need to recognize, and what most scholars would point out, is that this verse and others like it need to be understood as a warning to the nation of Israel in a national or in a societal sense. The sin of previous generations can affect the lives of others nationally or within a society. Remember this. When Moses disobeyed and when the people refused to go into the promised land, God said, you are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So there were at least two generations of people who suffered as a result of the sin of their forefathers who refused to obey God. In our culture today, we are suffering from the anti-God movement that began in the 1960s when there rose up a desire to remove God from the school from the public square, from the, from the uh, political arena, from the general conversation, and we are now living as a part of the suffering that has been passed down for the lack of intentionality to resist that in our culture some 50 or 60 years ago. The nation of Israel, when they were, held, when they were captive because of the northern and the southern kingdom falling, for multiple generations, the nation of Israel suffered as a result of that. But to say that children suffer specifically because of the sin of their parents 
is not supported in Scripture. In the same Old Testament that would promote the idea that the sins of the fathers are passed on to the third and the fourth generation, says this in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Like this in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Let me repeat what I said earlier. Suffering in general is the result of general sin attributed to the fall, but there is specific suffering that can be the result of specific sin, for example, in life choices. Imagine the guilt that generations of Jewish people lived with thinking that I did something in my life that caused my child to be born with this physical malady. You ever see those commercials on TV where they're asking you to support St. Jude's or Shriners Hospitals and you see these children who are in cancer wards, you see these children who have been given a very, very difficult hand, and you see the agony and the anguish and the eyes and the faces of those parents, and to think that a parent would be able to draw the conclusion that I'm responsible for this. That's why it's important that you and I understand and why I wanted to spend the time on this today. Specific suffering in the life of another is not the responsibility of their parent. Sometimes it's life choices. Sometimes it's just the result of general sin that can be traced all the way back to the fall of man. Suffering in general is the result of general sin. So we see the blind man and we see the misunderstanding. Number three, we see the clarification that Jesus makes as a result of this misunderstanding that his disciples have. Verse 3 reads, Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So here's what Jesus underscores, not because of sin. He doesn't get into a long discussion. He doesn't deal with the particulars. He doesn't refute and explain and debate. He simply says, this man is not born blind because of his sin or because of the sin of his parents. Now, Jesus corrects their faulty interpretation by supporting what the Old Testament would say, that this sin, this, excuse me, this, sick, this blindness is not the result of anybody's sin. Instead, his blindness is going to result in God being glorified. Not because of sin, but for God's glory. Now, if you were to read this and not investigate and not study, it's quite likely you would come to a false conclusion. So let me say this. You can understand this in two different ways. Number one, God caused the blindness so that in years to come, He could be glorified by reversing the man's blindness. Or, number two, God would simply be glorified in this man's blindness. There's only one correct answer. F.F. F. Bruce, a very noted commentator, states it like this. He says, this does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that after many years, his glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. To think so would again be an aspersion on the character of God. 
It does mean that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ and others seeing this work of God might turn to the true light of the world. I don't know you could say any better than that. God doesn't cause these things to happen so that He can be glorified at some point in the future. They happen and God chooses to intervene or to intersect that person's life to be merciful and to be gracious and undoing or reversing. And in response of that, God receives the glory and the honor that He is due. Suffering in general is the result of sin in general. And God chooses to intervene in the suffering caused by our sin, attributed back to the fall, our inherited sinful nature, to bring glory to Himself. When others see the work of God in us, whether it be a physical healing, whether it be a spiritual transformation, whether it be a character overhaul, whether it be the victory over sin, when that happens in our lives, when a merciful and a gracious God intersects our sinfulness, others will see that and they, like us, will give glory to God. God is not obligated to remove the suffering that is caused by our sin, but when He does, brother, He ought to get all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. So this is what Jesus is talking about, that this man's blindness was not because of his parents' sin, but God is choosing to overrule that so He Himself will be glorified. So the problem and the misunderstanding and the clarification brings us to number four, and that is an imperative Verse 4 reads, we must, do, excuse me, we must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So here's the imperative. The imperative is, do His work. Now, it's interesting as you read this verse that there's both a plural and a singular element here. Jesus says, we, me and you disciples, we must do the work the Father has sent me, Jesus, singular, to do. Think about that. Jesus and the disciples must do the work that the Father has sent Jesus alone to do. It is an amazing reality that the disciples get to participate in the divine mission of the one and only who was sent into the world from a predetermined plan in eternity and they get to participate in that. They get to be observers of that. They get to be used by the Lord in that. He is the one and only sent by the Father to do this work that God has called Him to do, showed Him to do, revealed in His life to do, and the disciples get to see that. Now, in this very limited and in this very specific sense, they are involved in seeing this man being healed and then bringing glory to the Father. I can imagine them saying, yeah, we were with Jesus, and Jesus healed this man, and we were all part of that, and it was an amazing thing to see. I don't think for a second they said, you know, we, we had a, a role in that, that it was because we were there, and if we hadn't been there, it wouldn't have happened. I don't think there was anything like that. But they got to participate in this amazing miracle that was going to bring glory to God. Now, in this verse, there is this repeated contrast between darkness and light, which has been known for millennia to reflect the existence of both good 
and evil. As long as it is day, we must do the work. Because darkness is coming. As long as Jesus is physically alive and with the disciples, it is daytime for them. But when He dies on the cross, they will be thrust into darkness. It's a limit, there's a limited time for this divine mission that Jesus has, and there's only a few more months before His date with the cross appears and arrives. And when that date arrives, the disciples are going to be distraught and they are going to be without purpose. That's what Jesus means when He says, when darkness comes, no one can work. Now remember this. When Jesus died on the cross, what did the disciples do? They went back to their old way of life, didn't they? They went back to fish. They picked up what they laid down to resume the only semblance of normalcy that they had in their life. They were so consumed by their loss that they weren't able to do a single thing. It isn't until... Jesus appears to them in His post-resurrection appearances and tells them to go into Jerusalem and to go into the upper room and to wait and to pray. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out into the hearts of all those that believe. It is then and then alone that the darkness is removed and the light has been restored through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus restates, and again in verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There is no dramatic I am here. There is no ego am I that we saw in previous verses that we're going to see again in this dialogue coming up later in chapter 10. It's just a simple restatement of the truth that I am the light of the world. I am here to bring salvation. I'm here to bring healing. I'm here to reveal myself to the world as the one and only sent by God. And I'm about to become the light of the world to this man who has been born blind. Now let me say this. I believe with all my heart that Jesus' words here have a very specific application and truth to the disciples at that moment, but I also believe that there is a post-resurrection application that you and I can make in our lives today. You and I must do the work that God has saved us to do. We no longer walk in darkness. Why? Because the light of the world has filled our hearts. And as He was the light of the world when He was physically present in this world, you and I are to be the light of the world and the sphere of influence that God has allowed us to have. We have a unique divine imperative and privilege to join Jesus and His disciples and doing the works of God. And we need to remember, just like it was for them, the time is short. The darkness is pervasive. And as He is the light of the world, we must be faithful to allow His light to shine through us. You know, some of us have lived a very long life by most standards. But in the scope of eternity, we've lived but a drop in the bucket. Time is short. And with each day that passes, 
the time gets shorter and the darkness gets more pervasive for those who don't know that Jesus is the light of the world. But you and I weren't saved to sit in a chair, to worship in singularity. We were saved to do what God has called us to do. We celebrate Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, don't we? For by grace you've been saved through faith and it not of yourselves. It is a gift of God and not by works so that no man can boast. But we forget this. Verse 10, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to sit on the sidelines and observe and cheer the ministers on. Is that what it says? It says we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. If you remember when we studied the book of Ephesians many, many months ago, that word beforehand means an eternity past. When God looked forward and selected the saved, the the people that were going to become His children, He identified what you were going to do, what you were going to do, and what you were going to do, and what you were going to do, and what I was going to do, and He saved us so that we could do His work. Not sit back, not pull out the lounge chair, and relax with a nice cold glass of tea. We're there to be in the battle doing the work that God has saved us to do. The third section we look at here, very simply in conclusion, is the power. The power that the one and only holds within himself. Verses 6 and 7. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. The power here is very simply this. The man sees. The one who was born blind. We don't know how old he is. But now he sees. I want you to think about this. As they had encountered this blind man, they didn't continue to walk down the road. They are very likely having this very brief conversation within the hearing of the man born blind. They hear the conversation about who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would have been born blind. And Jesus says, neither. He was born blind so that God would receive glory. He hears this very quickly, and all of a sudden, he hears the spit, he hears the rustling of the dirt and the mud, He feels the hands placed upon him. He can sense the weight of the mud on his eyes. The blind man was that close to Jesus as this discussion takes place. Notice three things very, very quickly. Notice the elements. Mud and spit. Jesus could have used anything. He could have used nothing. He could have snapped a finger. He could have a puff of air. He could have spoken a word. There's a lot of debate about why Jesus spat and why He used the mud. Some speculate that this goes back to Genesis 2-7 where God formed man out of the dust of the earth and this man who was born with dead eyes was going to have new eyes created at the touch of Jesus and the combination of this little mud pack. But this man who was born blind with eyes that never worked, dead eyes, if you will, will have new eyes created in him through the healing power of Jesus. 
Hearing the conversation, feeling the touch of Jesus, feeling the mud on his eyes, he's got to be wondering what is going on. Who are these people? What, what are they talking about? Why is this guy doing this to me? The second part we see here, the second thing to notice is the command. In this very brief encounter, Jesus simply says, go and wash. He doesn't explain anything. He doesn't say, I am Jesus. I am the one and only. I've made a miraculous mud pack that's going to restore your sight. He doesn't do anything like that. He simply says, go and wash. You see, it's a test of his faith. It's a test of his willingness to trust what he is feeling and hearing at the hands of Jesus. Now, it's quite possible that this man who has sat outside the temple has heard about Jesus. It's very possible that he has heard Jesus speak or teach. It's very possible that he's heard the debate about who Jesus really is. We don't have any idea. It's apparent that he doesn't know who Jesus is because unlike blind Bartimaeus who who calls out for the Son of David to have mercy on him, this man doesn't say anything as he hears this conversation going on. The pool called, it's called Scent, the Pool of Siloam, received its water from a spring through a channel. It was nearby one of the outer parts of the temple. It was constructed way back in the days of Nehemiah. He's told to go to this pool and he's told to go and wash himself. Again, the Pool of Siloam isn't anything magical or mystical about that. He could have said, dump your head in that bucket. He could have said, roll around three times. He could have said anything. But a test of his faith, a test of his willingness to do what Jesus says, tells him to go to this pool of Siloam and to wash. The third thing that we notice here is the faith of this man. It says he went away and washed and came back seeing. Years of blindness washed away by miraculous mud, the clay and the spittle. Again, many want to make a big deal about all of these elements and trying to find significance to why he chose to do what he did with the things he did. But it's all speculation. You really can't say emphatically that any or all of those things are true. The main point is this. Jesus is the light of the world, and he has brought light into the life of the darkest of darknesses in giving this man who is born blind the ability to see with his physical eyes And as we'll learn through the continuation of this narrative, this man will come to a saving faith later on, truly seeing and understanding and experiencing the light of the world. Our obedience to God's commands empowers His working in our life. Let me say that again. Our obedience to God's commands empowers his working in our life. What would have happened had the blind man said, I'm not getting up to go to the Pool of Siloam. That's a long journey. And you put mud all over my face, and I don't know who you are, and I don't know why you've done this, but you better clean us off, because I'm not taking any walk to the pool. Our obedience to God's command empowers His working in our lives. The spiritual victory that you and I can experience as a result of obeying 
what God has told us to do is far beyond anything we can even imagine. That's why Paul would say, not to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory and the praise in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and forever. But our lack of obedience will stifle the empowerment of God in our life. God is sovereign. God can do the two by four against the head to get our attention. God can bring significant circumstances into our lives to wake us up. All of that is true, but I firmly believe that our obedience empowers His working in our lives. We will feel His presence. We will see His presence. We will see His hand. And unlike the unbelieving Jews who Jesus said, you don't see and you don't hear, you and I can say quite the opposite. I see God in my life every day. I see God orchestrating circumstances every every day. I see God bringing victory into my life every day. That's what we ought to be able to say. That's what we ought to desire to have said about our lives. At this point in the chapter, Jesus is no longer involved. He disappears. The man will journey on. There's a great debate between he and the Pharisees. The parents are involved. He'll be put out of the synagogue and then Jesus will show up. Seek this man out. And that's where this man will come to saving faith. Thinking about our blindness, never knowing what physical blindness is like. Some of you have had cataracts removed and you've seen your vision greatly improved, right? Well, this man saw nothing. He didn't know what blue looked like. He didn't know what white looked like. He didn't know what green looked like. He knew nothing. Had no ability to appreciate the wonder of God's creation. Jesus healed him of his blindness, but I would venture to say that what he was now able to experience physically didn't compare to what he experienced spiritually. He will say later on in this passage, I was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Would you pray with me? Father, You are a great God. We just acknowledge that You are not obligated to do anything for us. Nothing on our behalf. We don't deserve it. We certainly aren't entitled to it. Yet You are a God who is gracious and merciful and generous and kind and patient and loving. Father, as Jim mentioned earlier in his prayer, would you teach us to lay down whatever physical challenges we face and just bask in the greatness of this gift of salvation you have given to us. May every day of our life be a thank you for who you are and what you've done. May we be faithful to give you thanks in everything because of what you've done and because of the eternity that awaits us as your children. We worship you. We celebrate you. We love you. We praise you. Would you accept our praise? Would you deepen our understanding of how good you are? Would you burden and motivate our hearts to give you more of ourselves? 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.